Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm excited to have Brianne Dick with me on episode 30 today. Brianne is a strategist, coach, and consultant who helps micro-businesses grow their revenues and their impact by applying the principles of adult learning. While others focus on online marketing, instructional design, business strategy, or product development, Brianne's expertise brings them all seamlessly together, resulting in a uniquely personalized results-based approach. Her clients are speakers, authors, coaches, consultants, and other micro-business owners who want to be known for achieving world-class results for their businesses and their customers. Brianne has consulted on flagship products and programs, creative live courses, live events, and workshops for thought leaders, including New York Times bestselling author Chris Gabot and Amazon bestselling authors Natalie Sisson and Tara Gentili, one of our former guests. Brianne, thanks so much for the work you do in the world and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. All righty. So how does one start with, you know, coming into the world of entrepreneurship, teaching people about online education and adult learning? That doesn't seem to be an, an easy place to start. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting because my story is, I think like a lot of creative entrepreneurs, it's kind of that winding road that eventually you get to a destination, but it's not exactly clear what that destination is going to be when you start. So my background actually, you know, I, my first, I have two university degrees because I'm a learning geek. So let's get that out of the way right away. So my first degree was in computer science and I was going to be a programmer and I spent, you know, two and a half, three years. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure if this is really for me, but you know, I'll, I'll finish it out. Finished that degree and was like, I am not going to be a programmer. So what do I do then? Well, I've done all the technology side of things. I figure, oh, I'll go figure out the people side of things. Let me figure out, you know, I know how machines think. Let me figure out how people think. So I went into another degree and I did uh, a religious studies degree. And I looked at, you know, what is the psychology of belief and all of that. And got out of that and was like, still not right, don't want to become a professor, now what am I going to do? And, you know, through a, a series of different events, I landed a job at uh, basically a technical college here in Calgary where I'm living right now. And I was basically a web developer because that's how I put myself through school, right? I took that little bit of programming and that little bit of how people think and how they understand the world. And I decided I could build websites. And so I got a job at this technical college and we were building the course websites and figuring out, you know, this is when online learning was still pretty new. You know, you had... Uh, you know, flash was all the rage. So it was, can I make a flash simulation or a flash animation of how this process works? And I did that for about five years. And, you know, some of it was good. Some of it was not so good. By the end, you know, I had moved up and I had learned, you know, a lot about how people learn and, and what it takes to really engage people and get results and, and all of this kind of stuff. Ended up with not a great experience. I basically got to the point where I changed bosses and that wasn't a good decision to make. So I was like, okay, I've been doing this web design thing on the side. I've figured some of this stuff out. If I actually tried, I could probably make a go of it on my own. I could probably like, you know, start my own business. So did that. It's about three years ago now that I did that. And I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be a web designer. 
And, you know, like a lot of other uh, creative entrepreneurs, uh, what's the first thing you do? You go out and it's like, I'm going to take courses and I'm going to like learn how to do this freelance thing. And I'm going to like just consume all of this information because like I said, like I was going to try. I was like, if I really tried, I could do this. And how do I try? Well, I have to go and figure out what that looks like. I started taking these courses and I was getting disappointed. I was like, these aren't actually that good. Like they could be so much better. And I was realizing that, you know, I have all this background. I have five years in adult learning and adult education. I know what's effective. And these online courses, you know, some of them were really good and most of them weren't. And so that basically caused this whole trajectory shift for me where I started just saying, you know what, I actually know something about how people learn. I've seen it work, not just in theory, not just what's in the ivory tower. This was a technical college. We were training electricians and plumbers and welders and chefs, like really hands-on stuff. I know how to really help people learn stuff. And there is a huge need for that in this micro business, online business, thought leadership kind of world. What if I tried to do something there? And so that's that's how I came to this point was, you know, through my own experience as a student, just realizing there's so much more opportunity and, and no one wants bad stuff out into the world. And if I can help, you know, some of those people that you mentioned, like, you know, Chris Gillibo, Tara Gentili, Natalie Susan, and so on, if I can help them take their message and really make it impactful and actionable and help them get results for their customers. How much better is that for them and for the students? It's huge. Let's wind back a little bit. So you mentioned that you switched bosses and it was not the right, you know, that was probably not the right choice there. Um, you know, you didn't necessarily have to start a business, right? You could have gotten another job. You could have moved on. What was it about the entrepreneurial pathway that, or, you know, sort of that pathway that really sunk to you? You know, I had a really, really valuable mentor at the time. And I remember sitting down for coffee with him one morning. And I mean, we both knew that I was unhappy in my present situation. And he gave me a challenge, which was to basically take some time. And he had eight categories of kind of career to look at. That was, you know, environment, values, tools, processes, clients, colleagues, fit to life, and compensation. And so he said, look at each of those categories. And in, in each of those categories, come up with three to five things that are like your checklist of like, if I had my ideal situation, what would that look like in terms of the tools I'd be using or the clients I'd be working with? And I did that. I really took that seriously. And I, you know, I came up with my list of 30, 35 things or whatever. And, you know, we, we came back and we revisited that a few times in future conversations. And what really came out of that was that what I was looking for was an autonomy and a way to make my own mark that I simply wasn't going to find in another, you know, in an organization at the time. Actually, I remember having the conversation that said, I don't want to work for an organization 
that is solely profit driven. And even though I was in post-secondary, it's still, you know, a very profit driven, like it's, it's money or bust kind of thing. And one of the things that I put in my values checklist was that I wanted to be in a place where I could balance the need for profit with the results and the impact in a way that felt authentic to me. And entrepreneurship, because I'd been kind of doing that on the side, I knew that there was something there that maybe I could leverage. But when I jumped, I didn't actually know if it was going to work. I basically said, you know, I'm going to try this. And literally, it was, I bet if I tried, I could make this work. But I still wasn't sure. And I mean, there are still days when I'm not sure, right? I think we all have those days. We're like, am I really doing this? Like, am I crazy? But it was by looking at what am I actually looking for in my life. And the advice gave when he gave me those eight categories was every time you make a career move, make sure you're checking off more of the boxes. And so for me, jumping to entrepreneurship was a way to say, okay, let's see if I can check a few more of those boxes. Yeah, that's very similar to a general rule in business as far as strategy goes is make sure that the next thing you do is at least as profitable as the last thing you did, right? Because otherwise you've got retrograde motion. And not just profitable in terms of, you know, the money side of things, but, you know, your time. Is, is there a time profit for you? Is there an energy profit? Is there a relationship profit? All of those different aspects of business, uh, those are all areas that you want to be improving your, your profit margin on as you move forward. Absolutely. So you make this pivot from, you know, working at the edu- working in the institution and then you're like I'm going to be a web developer and then you're like I'm going to help people build courses, right? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds so easy when you say it like that. It always seems easy in in in, in the rearview mirror. It's <laughs> never easy when you're going through it. Um when did that start to pick up for you? Like, what was the sort of spark moment where you're like, oh, there's something here. Like, it's not that just people need this, but people actually want it. And I can make a go of this one, too. Yeah. So one of the first things I did was there was actually a, a course I, I took and, you know, to protect the innocent. I won't name names. It was mine. She, she's being really nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can I can safely say it wasn't it wasn't Charlie's <laughs> course, um, <laughs> but uh, there was a course I took, and it was one of these ones that was dripped out over a period of months, and so I received the first module, it was the first month's material, and I got in there, I was so excited. I remember, I was actually traveling, I was in a hotel room, I'm sitting on the hotel bed, I was supposed to be on vacation, and I was. So excited to get in this course. And I read through all the materials and I get to the end of the first module and I say, is that it? Like, I was so disappointed. And in that moment, I don't know what came over me because at the time it was really out of character. And I said to myself, I have one of two options. I can email and ask for a refund or I can email and say, I can help you make this better. And I mean, normally I'm the kind of person that would have just kind of stuck, stuck it out, right? But for whatever reason, something got into me and I was like, okay, I'm going to send this email and I'm going to say, you know what? I know this is the first time you're running this. You're doing it as kind of like a beta test pilot. What kind of feedback are you asking for? What are you looking for? Because I have some background. Maybe I could help. And there must have been something compelling in the way that I expressed that or maybe just genuine and authentic because I wasn't trying to make a sale, I just genuinely was frustrated and wanted to make it better. 
And the, the individual responded back and said, said, yeah, let's look into that. Let's, let's talk about it. And that was the first moment when I realized that this wasn't just a good idea that I was, you know, kind of perceiving a need, but that I was right and that there was actually an opportunity. And so, you know, I, I kind of played around the edges, still thought of myself as a web designer. A few months later, I found myself at the World Domination Summit in Portland. And this was a couple years ago. And I didn't, I knew no one. Like, I, I knew no one. I was going just myself. I randomly was going to just show up and be there. And he said, you know what? For this weekend, no one knows me. And so I'm just going to experiment. When I introduce myself, I'm not going to call myself a web developer or a web designer. Instead, I'll talk something about making courses. And I, I didn't even know what that was. I, I had no vocabulary. I didn't know what would resonate. But I spent three days just introducing myself as you know, I help people build online courses, I help them take what they know and teach it to others, all that kind of stuff. By the end of the three days, actually, by the end of the first day, I was waiting in line to do my registration. I had a client who said, Oh, my God, I need that. Here's my card. And we ended up working together for about six months after. And that, you know, that was a moment. And through the rest of the weekend, it was just response like that after response like that after response like that. And so it was really a matter of just being experimental about it. If, if no one had responded well, it wouldn't have mattered. I wouldn't have lost anything because no one knew me. And, you know, I would go back to my world and I would go back and build another website or something. But, you know, I, it, it was landing the client was important. But even more important was to see how I lit up when I was talking about that and how that became infectious with the people that I was talking to and they got excited for me and I was like okay there's something here with the story you've told thus far it seems like either you get these moments to where you're just like screw it I'm gonna jump and see what happens or you have these moments like that's just kind of part of your character where you're just naturally an experiment experimenter and a jumper and so on. just so you know we can sort of dive into that are you naturally a jumper or is it just you get to those points where you're like oh i've got to email this person about this course or oh i've got to try this new course or just this new career or oh i'm just going to reinvent myself over this weekend and see what happens yeah no i am i am definitely not a natural experimenter I, I am very much an in my head person. And, you know, so for me to, you know, I said it very succinctly, like, oh, I'm going to go in this weekend, I'm just going to describe myself differently. That was a process of many, many, you know, weeks of thinking in my head. And like, I, this had been several months where I'd been kind of playing around with this idea of being a course designer or whatever I was calling it at the time. And it, yeah, it's very much the, the first piece of what you said, which is there, there comes a point when, you know, you almost throw up your hands and say, okay, you know, whatever, let's just try this and see. And that's something that is very hard and has always been very hard for me because I'm not naturally a risk taker. I'm naturally very, uh, I have a very low risk tolerance. I like things the way I like them. I like them in their buckets. I like them organized the way I like them. I'm very systematic. I like, I like puzzle pieces. I like, you know, stuff that fits together the way it should. Um, if you could see my office now, you'd see Lego everywhere because, you know, I like assembling the bricks because they all fit together. Um, and it's something that, you know, this idea of taking chances or reaching out or making those connections that 
I still struggle with. I struggle with it a lot. And the only thing I've found that I'm able to have a hope of getting better is almost to, you know, hold your nose and just try. And the next time it'll be easier. And then the next time it'll be easier. And the next time it'll be easier. But it's never going to be easy for me because that's definitely not my natural tendency. What are the signals for yourself when you know you're reaching that point? That's a really good question. Um, in some cases, I don't even realize that I've hit that point until I've made the, I've taken the action. So it's in retrospect, as I like, oh, I must have actually been at that point because that's what happened when I sent that original email. It was very spur of the moment. It's like this, I can't stand this anymore. I'm just going to, I'm fed up, going to send the email. If I had stopped to think about it, to try and recognize what was going on, I never would have sent the email because I would have talked myself out of it and I would have just gotten in my head. I would have got stuck in my head. And so, you know, what I had to do instead, what I've had to learn to do is when I get that kind of gut, really strong instinct, and it's just this sense of, you need to do that. I've learned that I need to take some immediate action, small is fine, but some immediate action to lock that in, because otherwise I'm going to get in my head and it'll happen. It happened last week. I got really excited about something and this. This week, I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. But because I took a step to lock it in, I told someone about this idea. Now, I have a little bit of forward momentum, and I'm not just locked in my head anymore. Yeah, I call that ratcheting, where like, if, if you don't have something that gets that grip on it, like you're just going to slide off of it. But if you just ratchet a little bit... <laughs> And then grow from that ratchet and then ratchet a little bit more. It actually, you are able to do really great things, you know, as opposed to spending the next six months regretting that you didn't do anything. Not that I've done that or anything. (laughs) No, no, none of us have done that. What's really interesting is that, you know, when we look at how people learn and we look at, because that's what we're doing, right? As entrepreneurs, we're always learning. When, When we talk about experimenting or testing or trying things out, we're talking about a learning process. And I mean, the research is very clear. We learn by doing. We learn by taking action. So, you know, I said when I first decided to be an entrepreneur, I was consuming all kinds of content. I was taking all kinds of courses. But nothing changed for me until I sent that email because it's action that actually produces learning. It's action that changes the way we see the world, the way we perceive things, our attitudes. It's our behavior that's the starting point. It's not the finishing point. Yeah, um, when I wrote the Small Business Lifecycle, I talked about stage one being that hyper-learning space. And the problem is we get stuck. We get stuck there because the story we have about that is that's what we need to do. We need to learn more. We need to read more. We need to take that additional course when a lot of times it's actually sending the email, right? Or going to this completely foreign workshop and be like, I think I'm going to try that on for a while and see what happens. And we, what I love about what you said there is you said, you know, I just need to learn more. But what actually is true is that uh, in, in learning theory, there's different levels of mastery. So you can have a very low level of mastery and a very high level of mastery, especially when it comes to like cognitive or thinking skills. So at the lowest level, you have just knowledge. Do you know what a word means? Do you have some comprehension of what that means? The next level is understanding. Like, do you actually get it? So you've seen the word, but you actually know what it means. You can explain it in your own words. The next level after understanding is application. So if I give you a formula or a tool, can you apply it? Can you use it? We see this in a lot of online courses where it's like, I'm going to give you a script or a template, and you're going to like 
fill in the blanks, then you're going to send it off. And you get to an apply level of mastery. And that's where a lot of us stop, right? We think, oh, I know it, and I understand it, and I can apply this stuff, and I can create, you know, this email according to this template. But that's actually, apply is basically the tipping point between low-level mastery and high-level mastery. If you want to move up, it's not just enough to be able to apply. The next level above that is to analyze and say, what's actually going on? So you've got a script, break it down. What's actually going on? What are the pieces of this? Then evaluate. Why is this working? Why isn't this working? We will talk about experimenting and testing. That's evaluating, right? That's I've broken this down. Now figure out why it worked or didn't work. And then the highest level is once we've been able to figure out how to do all of those other things, then we can create something new that's never existed before. We can take those pieces, remix them, and create something that's uniquely ours. And so when you're just taking a course and you think, oh, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning, chances are you're probably not actually ever moving out of low-level mastery. Yeah, those six steps, if you're curious and want to learn more about that, that's actually Bloom's taxonomy. So if you Google it, um, you'll find a nice Wikipedia article about it. But yeah, it's, it's a very fantastic way. And when you look at it, um, I'm going to riff here just for a second, if you don't mind, Brian. Um, when you look at really thought leadership and expertise, it's really learning to get in that higher level of mastery of um, analysis, synthesis, and evaluation, actually. And so when you look at it, a lot of people can make things. This is a synthesis. And so we, we may we may have some interesting discussion about whether synthesis comes about evaluation, but we know they're in the top part of the pyramid, right? Um, there are people who can make a lot of stuff, but they can't actually evaluate between two options. And so um, the main point here is if you're going along a pathway where you're entrepreneurship really depends upon you being able to package and bundle your expertise, spend a lot of time in analysis, synthesis, and evaluation, not so much time in those lower levels because you're just not, that's not what you're going to get paid to do anyways. So... Yeah, absolutely. And and just, you know, for the the listeners at home, so synthesis and evaluation were the top two and Bloom originally formulated his taxonomy. And since then, some researchers have basically said, no, they should be flipped and it should be evaluation and creation. Either way, though, you're right. I mean, you can't really do one without the other, right? You can't create something without evaluating and you can't evaluate without being able to create in the first place. The, the critical insight is exactly what you said. You need to spend the time doing that analysis and the evaluation and the creation, the synthesis. And you need to invest the effort into doing things. The other thing that Bloom's taxonomy has been used for in educational circles is just giving us verbs for being able to talk about the actions that show that I'm able to apply. Like think about the words, right? I am applying a tool versus I am analyzing versus I am evaluating or creating. Those are action words. Those aren't, you know, theoretical concepts. That's doing. And, you know, it's, it's a challenge, not only for us when we're trying to master our own skills, but then, then when we want to go and help others on their journey to master those skills, we have to be cognizant of that, that that's where they need to spend the time as well and to help them develop those higher order skills rather than just staying in the, in the muck of knowing and understanding. Yeah, we can likely geek out here for a long time, Brian, and, and <laughs> probably. probably could, maybe in another episode um, or another venue. But um, what I want to say is for those people who aren't in their own 
um, business or you're not entrepreneurs, um, understand that um, the more you spend time in your, you know, employed job in those latter levels of mastery are the ones which you're just going to really increase your value to an organization. Because one of the hardest questions that, that gets assigned to people in an organization is like, hey, here's what's going on. Evaluate these two options and let me know which one's better, Right. That's an evaluative thing. It's not like, hey, do you, did, did you read that or did you read the memo? No one cares if you read the memo. Everyone cares if you can actually, you know, analyze and evaluate the memo, right? So spend as much time there and you're just going to see over time your paychecks start to be a lot higher and you, the cool jobs you get to do to be, you know, so much more. One of, you know, I mentioned how there's, there's verb charts. Like if you were to Google Bloom's taxonomy verb chart, you'd get hundreds of results. And one verbs that shows up that's one of my favorites at the create level or at that synthesis level is plan because planning is an extremely creative activity and so whether you are you know you're setting a strategic plan for your employer or you are just trying to you know plan for your family or you're trying to plan for your own business that's extraordinarily creative and that planning process requires you to do all kinds of extraordinarily intense things and to have a broad base to draw on. So yeah, absolutely. It doesn't matter what your career or, or your life situation is. This is transferable across, across all of those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, and I've written a lot about this and talked a lot about this, and when they look at planning, they think that planning is much more of an analytical task than a creative task. And so they'll do things like put it at the wrong time of the week or the day. Or exactly what you said. It's just really the higher level planning that you do, the more it's going to tap into creative reserves in a way that you... This is really hard to do, which is why we have strategy weekends. We don't have a strategy 15 minutes because you can't do it in 15 minutes. You Well, unless you're really forcing an insight, but that takes practice, right? Yeah. And it's usually built up over time, right? You'll have a, you know, a lot of 15 minutes that leads up to the one 15 minutes that actually makes a difference. Yeah. Or the three minutes in the shower with hot water. Yeah, Go exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you've talked, you know, on your website about the hack first mentality and some of the problems. So kind of also walk us through what is the hack first mentality and what's the problem with it? So the hack first mentality is the term that I guess I've coined for the prevalence of life hacking, growth hacking, career hacking, et cetera, et cetera. You can almost put any noun in front of the word hacking and there's probably a website dedicated to it, right? But it's the idea that if you just change one small thing, everything else becomes massively easier. And the the story that I tell on my website is about the time when, well, not the time, it's happened a few times, but there's one time in particular that I was going to get fit, right? Like I was really going to, you know, start working out and do whatever. And I knew that I needed to set a realistic goal. And so I thought, you know what, I just want to be able, my first kind of milestone on this way to fitness is going to be the ability to touch my nose. And if I could just do that, it's going to be great. And I went out and I, I don't know how I happened to find it, but I found an article which was basically uh, a three-minute exercise that you could do from the comfort of your own home. And miraculously, you'd go from, you know, barely being able to get your hands past your knees to actually getting your hands on the floor. I thought, I'll try it. You know, three minutes, not a big loss. Uh, so I did. And wouldn't you know, I could touch my toes. And I thought, this is fantastic. Like, I'm on my way. And what I didn't realize at the time, and now, you know, in retrospect, I can see is, in some ways, that was actually a really 
bad thing to have happened to me. And this is why I have a problem with this hack first mentality. I was looking for a fitness hack. I was looking for a touch my toes hack, right? Like the one thing I could do, three minute exercise that I could do that would get me to touch, you know, hands to the floor kind of thing. And I found it. And as a result, I was starting from then on to look, how can I hack squats? How can I hack pull-ups? How can I, and I started basically skipping that entire process that we were just talking about of gaining mastery and putting in the work and doing the time to really achieve that high level of mastery. I got myself in this hack first mentality that first, I'm just going to see if there's a quick hack. And if I can't find it, I'm going to go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Big, this happens a lot. And and Charlie, you could probably riff on this a lot with productivity, right? We move from productivity hack to productivity hack to productivity hack. And it's like, we find one thing that works for us a little bit and then we're done. We we don't want to go deeper because it's like hack to hack to hack to hack. And I just, I have a real problem with that. Because when we take a hack first mentality, we don't ever move past the beginner level. We never achieve mastery. We never learn to push through because the truth is stuff isn't always going to be easy. And so if I'm a big advocate for craftsmanship, for doing things with intention to create a remarkable result. And a hack first mentality is not the way to get to craftsmanship, no matter what it is you're trying to create, you might get a few quick wins. And I'm a, I'm a believer that you can make small changes and see huge results. But the difference between a hack first mentality and that is a hack first mentality is just a small change for a small win. Touching my toes was a small win. If I made a small change, which was every morning when I get out of bed, I'm going to put my shoes on and I'm going to go around the block before I do anything else. That's a small change that leads to a big win. But that's not a hack first mentality. That's a strategy I'm putting in place that I can then employ to help me achieve higher levels of mastery. Beautifully said. And I've had all sorts of different thoughts about hacks over the last eight, nine years. Um, but the thing about it is, is to be clear here, it's not that a hack is wrong. It's the mindset. It's the you have to look at hacks as something that you cumulatively do or that you ratchet. And so, um, you know, you can say that, you know, my workout hack is actually putting my shoes on because my shoes trigger me to walk around the block. Nothing wrong with that. The shoes is a trigger, right? And so you can just hack it by the first thing that you do is put on your shoes and the rest takes care of itself. That's not quite what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that endless search for the fastest, easiest, quickest ways to get something done that avoids you showing up and doing the work, right? Big differences there. And one of the key differences, I think, and to to just riff on what you said, is uh, there's a difference between doing a, a hack, getting a quick win, and then going and looking for the next hack versus taking that as the trigger to form a habit or to trigger a system or a process that you can follow reliably, right? It's the difference between... I hacked how to touch my toes, and then I went and looked for a hack to learn how to do a push-up. Instead of saying, okay, I've hacked how to touch my toes, now I'm going to use that as every time I touch my toes, then I'm going to drop down and I'm going to you know, do a couple push-ups from my knees or whatever. It's looking for a new, fresh solution every time rather than kind of laddering up or ratcheting up and using those hacks as building blocks 
instead of as just having to, you know, look for the latest and greatest thing all the time. Yeah. So it's about skill and mastery progression, folks. That's really what we're talking about, right? And so um, the the challenge and, and why we go to hacks so quickly is that we have a near immediate feedback loop, right? And so we can't do something. We do something. We get it. We get that dopamine hit. They're like, hey, we, we got we did it. And once you start going up to later skill, later levels of mastery, it's like I've been running six miles for three months and I haven't broken my time. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's a different sort of mindset and discipline that it takes to get through there. Um, and, you know, what was interesting is. We wouldn't call some of the things that you did to get your get your career started and the, the WDS experience a hack, but really what you were doing it was getting you know real time feedback that enabled you to say hey this is working on and which is a critical aspect of learning you can't learn without that feedback and that's why you know when you're stuck in those lower level levels of the pyramid that we talked about earlier you're not getting the feedback that you need to to actually integrate that inf- that information. Um, so, pulling us back into the story, um, you're picking up clients, so on and so forth. What were some of the biggest challenges you learned in those first two years? Like once you pivoted to do the course building, that like just man, that that was hard to figure out, or just um, one of those things you couldn't hack and you just had to work through. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, one of the hardest things is uh, at the time. It's changed a little bit now, but you know, you go back two years ago. And you say, I'm a course designer, or I'm an instructional designer, or whatever. And even in a, you know, community of, you know, say, online business people, or authors, or speakers, you're going to get a lot of blank looks, and you're going to get a lot of, so what? Or I don't even know where to help. And this is actually a place where that common advice of some of those hacks actually got in the way. Because one of the, the advice that you often hear is, oh, what would people Google if they were looking for you? And I was like, my people don't even know they have a problem, right? Like they, they don't even, they're not even problem aware, never mind going into Google and it's like, how do I make a better online course? Like no one's searching for that. Um, they're still not searching for that. And so one of the biggest things that I had to learn was what is the problem that I'm actually solving? So what I learned, and I think we saw it actually in the introduction, the way that, that you presented my bio when you introduced me is I don't lead with I'm a course designer or I'm a learning strategist or any of that. Instead, I say I help micro businesses grow their impact and their revenues. And the way I do that is by applying the principles of adult learning. So what I thought was my actual value I was providing wasn't the value. It was the way I was doing it differently, right? Um, Tara Gentili talks about that. And I, I listened to the interview. So if you haven't listened to the interview, after we're done here, go listen to that one, because that's something Tara says in that one, right? It's about what you're doing differently, how you do what you do differently that makes you stand out. So, you know, it's not what I thought was what I was doing, which was creating amazing online courses. That's not actually what I provide. What I actually provide is grow your impact, grow your revenue. And there's a whole bunch of different ways that I do. You know, I could expound at length on that. But the way I do it differently is the adult learning. That's the differentiator. It's like the tool that I'm using, not the result. That took a long time to figure out. 
about to say, how many brick walls did you headbutt, right? Until you get until people were like, so why should I care? Yeah, and you know what? It's really funny because I knew that was the question. Like, I'd been doing this long enough. I'd been I'd been learning enough to know that that's actually the problem, or that's actually the question to be answered. Like, why should I care? And intellectually, I even knew that the answer was grow your impact, grow your revenue. I knew that intellectually, but. Whether it was because it took me a long time to get comfortable with that personally, right? Leading with, I'll help you make more money. That's an uncomfortable thing to say in a lot of cases. So I think there was an aspect of that as well as just, well, everyone says that, right? How, that, that doesn't help. The truth is I was aware of that kind of you know, cognitively, but I hadn't turned it into action. I hadn't led with that. I hadn't just made that my core message. So yeah, I knew it was important to say, oh, why should you care? And if someone asked, I could tell them, why should they care? But you know, another thing we know a lot of from, from learning psychology and theory is show, don't tell, right? It does no good for me to just tell you about all this stuff. I need to show. And so if you were to go to my website now, it's much more focused on showing the impact that applying some of the stuff we've been talking about, levels of mastery, for example, to your products, that can have a dramatic impact on your business. But it was taking this kind of theoretical knowledge. And it's funny because this is what I love to do. I love to take theoretical knowledge and make it really practical and actionable. But I was resisting doing that for myself. And it was only when I gave up that resistance and said, you know what, I actually do just have to lead with this is what people want, that all of a sudden, conversations became a lot easier. Yeah. What was the source of that resistance? Let's dig in there a little bit more. Yeah. So, like I said, I think, you know, I think part of it was just this idea. I, I mentioned when I left the technical college, I had that conversation with my mentor and I said, I want to be working in a situation that's not just about making money. It's not just about profit. And I still feel that way very strongly. And for me to lead with, I can help your business make more money, felt uncomfortably close to all hail the almighty dollar. And I didn't want to go there because it's funny because for me, you know, I was in, I'm running a business. I, I know that making money is important. I know that when I go and I hire a coach or a strategist or whatever, like, Am I going to see a return on this investment? That's an important question to ask. But I was uncomfortable with looking at this. Oh, is that really the message I want to be out into the world? And what I learned is it doesn't, you know, the message I put out in the world is only relevant if it's received by the person hearing it. And so for all of my resistance about I don't want to just be money first, that doesn't mean I can leave money out of the conversation entirely. So when I say I help you grow your impact and your revenues, I will never just say anymore that I will just help you grow your impact. I will always pair it with and your revenues because that's the balance point. I was going too far, I think, in the other direction of like I was resisting touching it at all instead of kind of pulling it back into the middle and saying, you know, this is this is the sweet spot where impact and revenue meet yeah and we see that very similar like we can go back and let's see what episode is mark maybe eight uh mark silver is how to you know um how to make a difference and make a profit right and so what i'm saying is we can approach the ways in which we talk to our customers but if we don't actually 
do it in a way in which it enters the conversation in their brain. And, you know, we all worry, I think, not we all, some people worry about um, how they're going to be perceived in the world and what they're going to be known for. But, you know, obscurity does you no good, right? And if you don't have a message where people can remember and it resonates and it lands, um, you've got a way bigger problem than being known for something is not being known at all, right? That's actually some, that's another lesson that I had to learn. So, you know, talking about some of the challenges along the way. When I started out, I mean, I had come relatively freshly out of an academic setting where learning was valuable for its own sake, right? You create a great course because that's just what you do. Like, it's, it's intrinsically valuable and meaningful to do that. And so I tried to sell that, right? You should create a better course because you should create a better course, right? It's a tautology, A equals A, <laughs> you know? Um, and what I had to learn is that creating a better course is only part of the puzzle, right? You create a better course because it's going to maximize, I call them the three R's. It's going to maximize your referrals. It's going to maximize your customer retention. And it's going to maximize your repeat buyers. In other words, you're going to make more money through the three levers that grow your business if you have a better quality product. But even that is not enough. It's not enough to make an amazing product for its own sake. Because if you can't get anyone into that product they're not going to benefit in the first place. And so just learning that, it's not enough to just, you know, be applying all the greatest research on, you know, what is it that makes people take action after they watch a video. It's not enough to just, you know, read that research and tell someone, oh, do this in your course, without also front-loading it with, if you're going to do this and have it be successful, you need to get people in there in the first place. And what's really interesting to me about that now is marketing is education. And the way that we bring people to right decision for them about buying a product is a process of education. And so all of that stuff that applies to creating great courses also applies to our positioning and our messaging and how we're bringing people to a buying decision. And it makes it a much more rich experience for me because I get to talk about more things, but it also makes it more relevant and present to the people I'm talking to because it is going to have an impact on the business because they are going to attract the right people who then can get the right results that can then get referrals, repeat buyers, and retention. It's the field of dreams problem, right? Like we think if we build it, they will come. And if we make it even more awesome, they will come. It doesn't pan out. But, you know, talk to us a little bit about this because that's the challenge, right? Is you're in a micro business and you can't, you don't have an infinite amount of time and resources to devote to both making this really perfect course and getting people in it, right? Yeah. (laughs) And so we either put the course out there and then work our tails off to get people in it and then it's subpar, (laughs) Or we make this really awesome course for like two years and no one's in it. So we, right. So it's a really awesome course with no customers. What's the balance there? It's a really good question. And to answer that, I want to first tell you a little bit uh, of, of research that is really important. So this is, I, I want all of the, the audience members who are listening to this, I want you to imagine it's 1999. And cell phones are just becoming a thing. Like the iPhone isn't even going to become a product for like five or six years yet. So we're talking like candy bar flip phones or, you know, the big, the big ones you see on the old movies. Like cell phones are just starting to break in. And I want you to imagine that you are one of the early adopters. 
and you know how to use a cell phone. And so uh, researchers from Stanford come to you and say, hey, we'd like you to participate in a study. Would you uh, help, you know, Joe Blow off the street who knows nothing about uh, cell phones learn how to retrieve a voicemail off of the cell phone? And you say, sure. And they say, okay, before you do that, how long do you think it'll take Joe Blow to master this new skill of, you know, figuring out how to retrieve the voicemail off of his cell phone? And uh, you give some number. And so this is what researchers actually did. This is, this is an actual study that they did in 99. And what they found is that researchers were terrible at predicting how the novices, the beginners, would proceed trying to master this skill. They couldn't figure out how long it would take. They couldn't figure out where they would struggle. They couldn't figure out any of that. And it didn't matter what the researchers tried. They said, oh, remember back to when you were a beginner. Or think of all the steps that go into retrieving a voicemail. And they tried all of these debiasing techniques. None of them worked. And they coined the phrase, and it was the name of the paper, which is the curse of expertise. And the curse of expertise is, if you're an expert, you literally cannot remember or imagine what it's like to be a beginner. And so the reason that this is relevant to your question is what I see a lot of people do is exactly what you said. They spend two years trying to create this amazing product and, you know, they're going to have like a professional film crew and like amazing worksheets and blah, 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 because that's what they think they need to do. And what they don't realize is that by doing that, they're actually invoking the curse of expertise on themselves because they're creating something so picture perfect that they're completely oblivious to the experience of someone that's new. So that's out. We don't want to do that, right? We don't want to invest a whole lot of time and money into something that then we have to figure out, A, how to get people in it, as you were saying, and B, we don't even know if it's going to work, right? And are we going to get great feedback from the people who maybe, maybe we get lucky and we get people in this program. Are we going to get great feedback about how it's working? No, because they see polished video, beautiful worksheets, amazing membership site. Are they going to tell us, you know what, this didn't work? Not likely. And are we going to be willing to hear that feedback that says we have to go and redo two weeks, two years worth of work? Not likely. So let's put that option aside. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum, which is I am just going to sell something and then I'm going to make it up as I go along, right? This also is a very common method, right? It's like I see a market opportunity. I'm going to put up a sales page. I'm going to sell, you know, hundreds of copies maybe. And uh, I have really no idea what I'm going to teach in this product, but I'll figure it out as I go along. And this method is also flawed because one of the things we have to realize is that when we're making a business transaction like this, we're trying to sell something. Someone is an exchange of value. So basically they're giving us money in exchange. We're making them a promise. I'm going to get you to wherever it is you want to go. And the problem is that if we haven't actually thought about that journey, we're also going to fall victim to the curse of expertise. We're also going to be making assumptions and we're, we don't even know what promise to make. We don't know. You say on the sales page, I'm going to make this promise for you. And then you don't have anything to back that up. And so you get into an experience, people are disappointed. They feel like they're not getting what they were, they were promised. They're not getting, you know, what was, you know, what, what they paid for. We don't want to go there either. So what I advocate for, what, what I believe and what I've experienced is the best kind of hybrid method is truly that it's a hybrid. Start off, just like say you were building a house. 
you start off and you get the architect's drawings. You get, you know, the what it's going to look like. There's going to be this many bedrooms. There's going to be, you know, this many bathrooms laid out like this. Going to take advantage of the beautiful south exposure, get all that sun, etc. And you get some drawings made up. And what's really interesting is that historically, the architect would have done all the drawings before the construction crew started working. But what started happening more recently is what's called a design-build methodology, where they do just enough plans to start construction so they don't get locked in to choices that they might want to change later on. So they do just enough plans to get the building permits to, you know, start pouring the foundation, whatever. And then the architect works with the contractors to build this house or building or whatever, and they can be adaptive and flexible as they go. So let's put this into a course building context. So if you do that kind of initial work, right? You figure out what's the promise I'm going to be making. Who are my perfect participants? What are they already asking me for? What can I give them that's going to help them overcome a challenge or get to whatever it is they want to get to? What can I promise them and feel good about? What's the bridge between what they think they want and what I as the expert know they need? That's like that initial set of blueprints. And then you go into a pilot. And I like calling it a pilot instead of a beta test. Because in beta test comes from software, which is you're looking for bugs, right? You're looking for problems out of this. Whereas the terms of a pilot test comes more out of the education world, which is you're going to be experimenting. There's that word again, right? I'm seeing a theme in our conversation. You're going to be experimenting and actually co-creating with your audience. So maybe you only take 10 people. You don't even have to launch it. Right? You don't have to tell people about this publicly. You just invite a few people that you know would be interested, past clients, people on your mailing list, just people in your network, friends of friends. And you say, hey, I'm thinking of doing this thing. My intention is that at the end of it, you'll get this result out of it. Can you, you know, would you be interested in joining me on this journey and co-creating this process with me? So it's not that you're just making up as you go along because you do have that kind of framework plan in place, but you also haven't figured out all the details to the point where you're no longer willing to hear feedback. And so I've done this myself. I've, I've you know, created a program, run it with a small group of people, then I run it with another small group of people. And I'm going to do that a few times until I know that what I've got is completely avoiding the curse of expertise. It actually works. And when I'm at that point, then I know that A, I've got people who will buy because I've been selling it all along. I know what messaging attracts them because I've been you know, doing that a few times. I figured out what resonates, what doesn't. I've had real conversations. And I know that my method and my system also work because I've actually been testing it out. And I'm not victim to the curse of expertise because I know that it works. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, I would say, yeah, do that, but I could say, yeah, do that. Cause I mean, the funny thing about it is I, I came, I came to this world from an academic environment too. So building, you know, teaching, teaching students ethics, right? You make the syllabus and here's basically where we're going. But then every week it's like, are they getting it or are they not getting it? Do I need to change this around? Do I need to pull that article or, oh man, they can't do Kant again. Um, that I barely got them to do Kant the first time. I'm not doing this again. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, or the military, it's like the same type of thing. It's like there's a lot of just-in-time development, just-in-time things, but it's not just-in-time like we didn't know what we were doing. It's just-in-time like adaptive feedback for the students, blah, 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 right? All that stuff. So what Brianne said, 
<laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because often we think that in doing that, we're giving a lesser experience um, that, you know, it's, whoa, I'm, uh, there's fear, right? Oh, I'm selling a half-baked product or a, an idea that's not fully developed. That's only true if you're not, not planning actually doing what Charlie just said, right? If you are planning on taking feedback and being adaptive and flexible and responsive, you're actually providing a much higher value of service because you're saying, I'm going to listen to the challenges you are experiencing and change what I'm doing to create the best possible outcome for you. And I mean, that is such a huge value to be able to offer to someone that I don't know why more people don't do it, to be honest. Well, because I'll I'll jump in here. I haven't done this and done this enough. It's we all want to avoid the perception that we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. If I put this out there and it didn't quite land and I don't know what I'm doing as opposed to, well, it might not have landed. Let's try a different way. Like, let's do this. And so we have completely different expectations, all ego, but still good things to work through. Expectations, right? That's that's what it comes down to is setting and and for yourself as well as for your students or your audience or your coworkers or your colleagues, setting an expectation that that's that promise piece, you know you can hold up your end of the bargain. Yeah. For what it's worth, when I do take courses online, I always take the pilots, right? Because I I actually, if I'm going to invest my time, I want the teacher to be there, right? Um, I don't want the canned, I don't want the canned drip thing, like, because, like, what am I going to do from there? I want to be able to ask, hey, Brianne, what about this? What about that in the pilot? So... That's not uncommon at all. There was a research study that was done that said, uh, what are the three predictors of student satisfaction? So before they take the course, can you predict how happy they will be with it by the end? And the three predictors were, number one, is the stuff any good? Like, is the course actually good? Is the curriculum good? The second highest predictor was, is, the, the, is there a potential for a relationship with the instructor? Do I perceive that the relationship or that the instructor is available to me. Even if I never take advantage of it, I will be more satisfied if I believe the instructor is available to me. The third one, this was specifically about online courses, was uh, is the student uh, tech savvy or internet savvy? You know, if, if they're going to struggle to use their technology, they're not going to be satisfied with the course. What was interesting is that those were, you know, the in this study, those were the only three things that actually predicted whether or not a student would be satisfied or not. Their relationship with their peers didn't matter. The, you know, none of that mattered. The only real predictor at the start looking ahead was content any good, relationship with the instructor, and whether they're tech savvy or not. So I think we do a huge disservice to ourselves, our businesses, and our students when we say, I'm just going to create an evergreen course and I'm never going to touch it and people are going to go through it on their own because we're actually costing ourselves customer satisfaction by making that choice. Fantastic. All right, so wrapping up and shining the light back on you, like what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? It's, uh, it's a good question. And we talked a lot about pivoting and, you know, getting clearer on messaging and clearer on messaging and figuring out, you know, what is this thing I'm actually trying to do? And that's a process that if you had asked me six months ago, I would have said, I can't wait for that process to be over, 
right? And what I'm learning now is that process is never over. That process of constantly refining, constantly pivoting, constantly, you know, just tweaking, finding nuances, learning new things about what I'm doing and and how to make that relevant and create amazing results. That's never over. Over. I will never be satisfied. I will never be happy with where I'm at. I will always want more. That's something, like I said, if you had asked me six months ago, I would have said, I can't wait for the day when I feel like I am in control. And the truth is, that's not going to happen. And that's hard. That's probably the hardest thing that I wrestle with and that I have wrestled with on this whole journey is I am never going to feel like I've got it all figured out. I am never going to be that jump first, take the risk type person. I am never going to do those things. And to be able to give myself permission to be and do and act in a way that's authentic to who I am and reminding myself that it's okay to do that. Not even okay, it's best to do that. That's the challenge that I'm working through and that I think I will continue to work through and that we all work through for as long as we live. Parallels one that I'm currently working through too, that to be a better expert, I have to kick away my expertise. Yeah. Everything you know, (laughs) right, kick it away and start over. Hard to do. Very, very hard to do. So if people remember just one thing about your body of work or about you from this um, episode, what would you want that to be? I would want you folks who are listening, I want you to remember that the pursuit of craftsmanship, of excellence, of doing amazing work is always a pursuit worth going after. We talked about that hack first mentality and the quick wins. And that's great. I have no problem with, you know, taking the quick actions that lead to great results, but always in service of craftsmanship and excellence, because that's ultimately how you'll make your mark on the world. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today, Brianne. Thank you. Okay, listener. So you heard it from Brianne. What can you do today to take your body of work or your craft and push it that one step further, that one step towards mastery and progression and craftsmanship. It's worth it. It is so, so worth it. So um, next time you think about a hack, think about growth instead. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.